Hey guys. Um, as always, it's fun to be back at SHIG. <clears throat> I haven't been here in a minute, so thanks for having me, everyone. Um, okay, so yeah, I love this series, Meaning Behind the Music, because it gives us the opportunity to do, or it gives really us the opportunity um, for everyone to do what I feel like I do all the time and maybe am alone in doing. Probably not alone, but I scrutinize what we sing and worship all the time. Like I'm thinking so much about, is this true? Do I believe that that's true? Is it true of me right now when I'm thinking? And, and this is really just, this is the way that I connect with God in worship is by like really thinking deeply about every word that we say because they're all packed with so much meaning and truth. And I think it's really cool to take the opportunity to like dig deep and unpack all of that. So I'm excited to be able to do that. Um, what also the way that worship looks for me is that when I'm doing that, like thinking a lot about all of the words and what they mean, is that if I come across something that I either don't understand or don't like think is biblical, I will not sing. Or I'll like take that moment just to pause, to pray, to like maybe think or like to look in my Bible, is this true? Is this not true? And this doesn't happen often at Christ Church because we have great worship leaders who think a lot about what they, what we're singing and what it means. But sometimes, like anything, Christian artists, like they're trying to make a cool sounding song. And so sometimes they'll throw something in that rhymes or that sounds good. And it might not, it might just be like, it's not even that, I don't know, it's like not that meaningful or maybe not that true. Um, and so for me, the song we're talking about tonight, the reason I mentioned that is that for me, this song <clears throat> was one of the songs that I didn't sing because I thought it was unbiblical. So when it first came out, it was actually Shig, I remember, um, that I think was the first time I heard it in a worship set. Um, I was like, I don't think that's true. I don't think that this is real. Um, and so we're going to talk about that and talk about how I was proven wrong. Um, so, oh, can we have the slides? Thank you. Uh, you can go to the next one. Um, okay, so the chorus of the song Mercy, if you guys remember it, goes like this. You delight in showing mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And like I said, when I heard this, I was like, no, that's not real. Like I, like, I knew that God was merciful, but that just seemed like a bridge too far. Like, to really say that he delights in showing mercy, and it just seemed like it was conveniently leaving out his judgment. Um, and so I was just kind of like, I don't know. I don't think I, don't think I can sing that, it, that he's like, that mercy really triumphs over judgment. That seems kind of like it's leaving out too much of the story. Like it was just convenient to leave everything out. Um, but interestingly, I was proven very wrong um, because not only is, are those lines biblical, they're actually two lines that are taken verbatim from two different verses. So you can go to the next one. The first one that we see is that you delight in showing mercy. And this is found in Micah 7. Um, where he says, who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. And it goes on um, as well to talk more about God's mercy and compassion on us. The second um, line there is mercy triumphs over judgment. And this is found in James 2, um, where he says... Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So, like I said, not only was I wrong about them not being quite biblical, they're both verbatim from the text, 
biblical. Um, by the way, Luke told me like 10 seconds ago that he also had the same impression, so it's not just me. Um, but um, yeah, but I was surprised to find these in scripture so blatantly and so specifically because I felt like I, I just didn't realize that was true about God. I didn't realize how much his mercy was important. Um, interestingly, both of these passages are also inspired by the same other passage, so both of them are quotes or reflections on a different passage that we find in scripture that really unpacks this a lot more. Um, so this is a little bit of inception, but we're talking about a song that was inspired by two passages that were both inspired by the same passage earlier in the Bible, written by Moses, um, and this is found in Exodus 34. So this is kind of where we're going to spend the rest of our time, is unpacking what this means. Um, so to give you a little context, the background here is just that God is um, God and Moses are up on Mount Sinai, and this is after the people have been saved from slavery in Egypt. And then um, immediately after, they make a covenant vow to be that I'm your God is our God, and we are His covenant people. Um, they make a golden calf and like immediately uh, break the covenant. And so God and Moses are on the top of this mountain, basically discussing like, what do we do now? This is an unfaithful people. I am a good God, what, how are we gonna make this work? What's gonna happen? And in that whole thing, there's a lot to unpack there, but in that whole thing, Moses asks God to reveal his glory, basically saying, show me what you're like, tell me who you are, what are your characteristics? I wanna know who you are, because up until that point, he saw the actions of a mighty and good and compassionate God, but he didn't have, there wasn't, this is like the first long description we get of God, so we don't have much to go on in ways of a description. So this is where God answers him. So God shows up and says, um, so it says, then the Lord came down um, in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord, or Yahweh. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and the fourth generation. Okay, so like I said, both the texts, we are, uh, our song quotes, are inspired by this text, and it's actually quoted in scripture more than any other passage. So if you read your Bible from front to cover, you would find over like 25 to 30, depending on how you count, times where verbatim, like somebody quotes this um, passage and then a lot more where it's like directly inspired or uh, reflection on this passage. So people in, authors of the Bible are like looking at this text a lot. It feels really important to them because it's God's self-disclosure. He's saying, this is what I have to tell you. So. Uh, the question is, what, how can we like, think about God's character? If you notice the passage, there's basically like the nice stuff at the beginning, and then there's stuff that feels kind of weird at the end. I promise we'll get to both. We're going to go with the nice stuff first, because it's first. Um, <clears throat> but first we see immediately five characteristics of God. We see that he's compassionate, he's gracious, slow to anger, his loyal love, <clears throat> and that he is faithful. So we're going to take a moment to unpack each of these things and just to answer the question, what is God really like? Like, how do we know who he is like? Um, so the first word is compassion. 
He says, I'm a compassionate God. So this word is actually a feeling word. Um, it is meant to describe an intense emotion. Um, and it is basically, I mean, literally, it's a, it means to co-passion, to passion with um, in our text. And that's actually not far from like the Hebrew definition. Carissa Quinn, who's a Hebrew scholar, writes this about the word compassion that it's related to the word, Hebrew word for womb. So compassion in the Hebrew Bible is centered in a person's core, and the word invites us to imagine a mother's tender feelings for her vulnerable infant. Compassion is a word that conveys intense emotion. So just like a mother would have intense emotion, this compassion for a baby in her womb or a, a newborn baby, an infant child, that is the way that God has this intense emotion uh, um, feeling toward you. He's not indifferent to you by any means. He has an intensity of his emotion toward you. The next word that we see is the word gracious. So where compassion was um, an emotion, gracious is more like an action. Um, so we see um, this active word being used to talk about showing favor or to be giving gifts, whether deserved or undeserved, um, and also to like aid somebody in their time of need. Um, so I invite you again to think of a parent, but this time a father, who is gracious um, and graciously gives good things to his son in his time of need. These two things taken together um, are, are, like, they're always together. They're meant to be taken together, and especially when we reference God's character. Um, these, both of these words are mentioned a lot in scripture, but only once are they ever mentioned apart from each other each. So these are together a lot because they're meant to portray like one idea that God is both compassionate and gracious. And this is news or like good news for us because God's feelings about us and his actions toward us are always going hand in hand, which is not true of me. My, I might have like compassion on somebody. I might see something and want to help maybe, but whether I actually help is dependent on a myriad of things, like my resources, my availability, the level of passion I have for them, all of the different things, right? My passion or my compassion for somebody and my mercy don't always line up. But in God, they do. Um, now, our English word for mercy is kind of rooted in the idea of these two things combining. It's the closest thing that we have to sort of conveying both the action and the feeling um, that we see, which is why we use the word mercy in our general, like generally when we're talking about it, and it's sometimes translated that way as well in Exodus 34. And that actually brings us back to our um, song and also back to Micah 7 for a moment, where he says, again, you delight in showing mercy. Um, Douglas K. Stewart, who writes a book on Micah, like a commentary, he says, um, this about the passage. He says, he, he, meaning God, God does not reluctantly forgive sins against himself and others. He does so eagerly as a manifestation of his character. Now, when I hear that, what I think about is, I don't know if y'all have had this experience, but I feel like in every movie where there's a proposal, like a rom-com or something like that, every movie where there's a proposal, the guy like gets down on one knee, you know, and he as soon, like, even before he says, will you marry me, immediately out of the girl's mouth is like, oh, yes, yes, of course I'll marry you. And it's like, he barely even has time to ask the question before she's responding in this um, really, like, immediate way. Um, and that is how I think about God's 
mercy in this context, that he delights in showing mercy. It's reflexive for him. He's, by the time we've come to ask for mercy, it's already dripping off of his lips. He's so ready to give mercy to us. He actually delights in it. Now, that really, we need to think about that for a moment because that begs the question, do we know that God is eager to forgive us? As I said, I did not know that about God. Like, I looked at that song where it said that God delights in showing mercy, and I was like, no, he doesn't. Because my picture that I had in my head of God was a picture of a God who gave mercy, yes. Like, I know he's merciful, Jesus came, and all of that. Like, I know that he's merciful, but my idea of God was that he, like, is really tired of my sinning. Like, he's ready to be done with it. And he's, like, waiting for me to just become perfect because I've taken too long, and it's really frustrating to forgive me again and again and again. And yet what we see in Scripture, (laughs) to my delightful surprise, is that he's not like that. He actually loves showing us mercy. It's something we can't really comprehend because, to me, Thinking about showing somebody mercy means that they've wronged me. I don't want that whole experience. I just don't want it. But to God, the, the delight in actually offering someone mercy seems like to him it even outweighs the pain of being wronged. He delights in showing mercy to us. He's eager to forgive us our sins. John Mark Comer writes a book on Exodus 34, and in that he says that God's baseline emotion toward you is mercy. It's so reflexive for him because of that. His default is mercy toward us. Now, we're going to move on to the next um, characteristic we see about God in Exodus 34, that God is slow to anger. Um, the idea here, I want, to, I want you to imagine a pot of boiling water, and the idea is if the water boils and overflows, that is God's um, anger, like the boiling, overflowing of the pot is anger. Now, I work in the coffee industry, and as such, I have a lot of coffee gadgets, um, one of which is my favorite um, kettle, which boils water in like less than two minutes. It's so nice. Um, And this, I think, is like the absolute contrast of the image of God here. In my case, if if it takes longer than two minutes for water to boil, I'm like... This is so annoying, like, I can't even wait. But God's anger takes so long to boil. It's this image of a pot that would be boiling for so long that it would be, like, so annoying to me as a person waiting for boiling water. The image is, like, somebody who needs, um, that God would need constant, constant aggravation over a long period of time for his anger to bubble over into, um, into anger. And um, so that's what we mean when God is slow to anger. The next two characteristics we see are that God is abounding in love and that he's abounding in faithfulness. Um, These, again, kind of go together. Um, The image here is this loyal love. So he he has a loyal love for his covenant partners, that he has steadfastness and long-suffering. He's willing to to suffer for a long time with these people. Um, The word faithfulness is sometimes, like in your versions, it might be translated as trustworthy or true. Um, and that reminds me of what Jesus says, that he's the way, the truth, and the life. It's not just that he's like good at keeping secrets or that he like, you know, he'll keep his promise to you or something and that kind of trustworthy. It's that he in himself, he is the very definition of truth. It's inherent to who he is, that he is faithful. And in that faithfulness, we see it paired with abounding love. Um, and so we see this, this really beautiful image of a faithful and loving God. Okay, so 
that wraps up essentially our first, the first half of the Exodus 34, um, where we kind of get all these really nice things about God that we all love. But like I said, I don't want to ignore the second half, which might sound a little more like, what does that mean? So the second half um, says, you could go to the next one. Um, it says, continuing on from the first, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. Okay, at a cursory reading, this sounds like God is vindictive or wrathful. Um, but I, and I've done a lot of research into this, and much smarter people than me have done a lot of research into this. Because, um, I, yeah, like, it, it means a lot more than what we see on the surface. Um, and if you have any further questions after this, by the way, there's resources that your small group leaders have for looking into this more. Because if you're like me, I'm not convinced that's like the first thing. Um, so the first thing I want to point out is that underlined part that he, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. That's a great translation, but it also sometimes is translated, which is also a good picture, that I will not declare the innocent, or I will not declare innocent the guilty. So God's not cool with people um, doing evil things and then calling them innocent. Like he believes and will stand for justice. And this is good news for us because we don't want guilty, oppressive evildoers running around the world, right? Like this is, none of us want that. We want there to be justice for wrong that is done to us and done to others. Um, and so this is a, a really important thing that evil doesn't go unchecked and that we can trust God to do that. But what I also want to point out is that this whole passage, like remember we talked about the first half and now the second half, it's set up to be sort of a contrast for that reason. We're kind of looking at this tension between God's um, judgment and his mercy. And what we read here is this, this, it says to the third or the fourth generation, which is a Hebrew turn of phrase. Third or fourth just means like however many. So like go pick up a third or fourth gallons of milk for us or whatever. And they're like, okay, go pick up however many gallons of milk they have is kind of like how that would be. Um, I do a lot of picking up gallons of milk in my industry, so I don't know why that rose to my attention, but it did. Um, so it's just however many there are. So are there three or four or five, just however many there are, um, that is how many generations God will punish the guilty. Um, but that is kind of the key word here, is that God won't declare innocent the guilty, but those who come to him with asking for mercy, he will um, forgive. Because as we've seen, God is quick to forgive. He's slow to anger. And so what we see here is it says that God's maintaining love for thousands of generations and that he will, um, he will bring iniquity on the third or fourth. But this doesn't mean that God's punishing children for what their parents do, um, but rather that he's punishing generations um, for sin that is repeated in their own generation. So the things that they're actually guilty of doing. And furthermore, and we're going to look at an example of this, but furthermore, what we see is that um, when God does punish, most of the time, it is not um, like a supernatural punishment. It's God letting or give, literally giving people over to their sin, the natural consequences of their sin. So for um, the nation of Israel, what that looked like for them many times was becoming conquered by other people. Um, and that's, we're also going to look at a similar example. So a really good example of all of this that I've just described, um, God's character and how it plays out in humans, is in the story of Nineveh. So you guys might be familiar with the idea of Nineveh. Um, 
with the city of Nineveh. So um, we mostly know about it from the book of Jonah. Jonah is a fun little tale. Um, and it's like a lot of children's books, right? Um, so I'm not going to go through the whole story, but the gist of it is that Jonah was sent to Nineveh to, re- to declare um, or to preach repentance. He said, they're being too, super evil. Preach repentance to them. And if they repent, I, God won't have um, punishment on them. But if they don't repent, then um, he, a punishment will come. So um, Jonah does that. And um, in fact, the people actually do repent, which is crazy. They go and they start worshiping God. They turn from their evil ways, and it's like a miracle. No one would have expected it. But Jonah is not happy. Um, so in, this is the chapter that most like children's books leaves out. But the end of the book, actually, um, Jonah says this to God. <laughs> Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious, this does sound familiar, a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Okay, Jonah's being really dramatic here. He's like, but the gist of it is that Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh to tell these people to repent because he didn't want God to forgive them. He wanted them to be punished instead because they were evil. And, um, and so he's mad at God for being who he is. He's mad at God saying, I knew you were going to forgive them. I knew that you had a soft spot for people who ask for your forgiveness and you were just going to let them go. Um, and he's mad at it. And instead of rejoicing that the city has turned to God, he's angry at God for punishing them. Now, Kind of the whole book of Jonah is all about how Jonah's a total loser and shouldn't have done anything that he did. But um, what is interesting is that um, I think we all kind of find ourselves here sometimes that we, we love when mercy is given to us, but when it's given to people who we don't like, people who have hurt us, we take issue with it, right? And this is exactly what Jonah did, maybe on a big scale, um, but we can do the same thing as well. So the story of Nineveh, unfortunately, doesn't end there, actually. Um, what happens eventually is that they go from bad to worse. They fall into sin, and um, eventually, actually, God destroys their city. Um, it, but it takes 150 years for between, like, after Jonah came and they repented. It was another 150 years before they were destroyed. And so when we say that God is slow to anger, we mean, like, 150 years slow to anger. It took him a very long time for his anger to bubble over. They had chance after chance after chance to repent before they were destroyed. And when they were destroyed, again, this was God didn't send like a cloud fire from heaven, although he does at another occasion, but um, that's not what happened with Nineveh. Rather, he was he just gave them over to, their, um, to the people around them. So the natural consequences of their sin and oppression, um, because Nineveh was like, a war, crazy country. Like they laid waste to everyone around them and they would um, pile bodies in the streets and skin kings alive and put it on their doors. They were like insane, disgusting. And their punishment for all of that was that the nations rose up around them and destroyed them. That was a natural consequence of their sin and God gave them chance after chance after chance to change. So it's uncomfortable maybe for us to think about God's judgment. I know for me, um, it's really uncomfortable for me to think about God's judgment. Um, 
I read books, some of the books in the Old Testament, and just get flustered thinking, like, why is this happening, or like, what's going on? Um, And I don't want to undercut that. There are still, like, there's things I can't even expound on here. Um, But what has been really interesting to me in the last few years of digging in, especially to this passage in Exodus 34, is that while I have issue with God's judgment, the authors of, especially what we see, what I feel like I've observed is that the authors of scripture have equal, if not more, issue with God's mercy. They look at God and are like, why are you so forgiving? Why do you keep having, why are you so slow to anger? Why are you keep forgiving people that are hurting? And so, although I think it's easy for us to be uncomfortable with God's judgment, what we actually see in scripture is that um, God has much more mercy when we would maybe miss or like think that that would be inappropriate than he does judgment or undeserved judgment. Um, Which brings us back to our song um, and back to James 2, where it says, mercy triumphs over judgment. The full scope of what it means is maybe beyond this, but part of it is that what mercy accomplishes, um, that mercy accomplishes what judgment cannot. Mercy changes lives and it changes trajectories. And it's the most effective way to squash evil in the world. And that's God's primary way of dealing with humans and dealing with human evil. Um, John Mark Comer again writes a book on this and he says, um, he invites us to, to kind of picture this imagery of like a scale of justice like I've put up there. And he says, the imagery here is of a scale that's weighted to the side of mercy. He punishes to the third and fourth, yes, but, it's main- but he's maintaining love to thousands. When you approach him in repentance, the weight of your sin will never, ever, ever in a million years outweigh the weight and the vastness of his love, abounding love and forgiveness and mercy toward you. He has loyal love to thousands of generations. So, what do we do with all of this? Um, I have three things I just want to encourage you guys to do as we walk away. The first is to confess our sins. Um, So, like I kind of was expounding on, God's judgment does not come upon people who confess their sins. God's judgment is reserved for those who refuse to repent, who refuse to ask God for mercy. So one of the best things we can do to really acknowledge the goodness of God and the mercy of God is to be consistent in confessing our sins, to be honest about confessing our sins. Um, in 1 John 1, 9, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So I invite you to go before God and confess your sins, knowing that his default toward you is mercy and that you can have confidence approaching his throne. The second thing I encourage us to do as we walk away is to meditate on God's character. So as I shared, um, this song that we're we're gonna sing it in a couple minutes here, um, really challenged me to meditate on God's character and think about, okay, what is true, what isn't true, which led me to Exodus 34. And it's honestly been like one of the most transformative discoveries I've had in my whole life, but especially in my adult life, um, to learn this much about God's character and what it means for him to be this way. Um, Because again, I was misinformed. I didn't realize how much his mercy, how much he was weighted to the side of mercy. 
Um, and so what we, I would encourage you to do is continue meditating on this. Again, you can look at Exodus 34 and the many places that it is quoted um, in, throughout scripture. But the goal here is that we would adjust our image of who God is to be true of what he says about himself, not just what we think that we know based on our experiences or whatever our misconceptions are. Okay, the third thing, third and final thing is that we are, um, I'm encouraging us to imitate the Father's character. So we, as his children, um, should be people marked by his characteristics. We should be asking, are we eager to show mercy? Are we slow to anger? Um, Do we have compassion on those around us? Do we show loyal love? Or to sum it up, as Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount, he says in... um, In Luke 6, 36, he says, be merciful as your heavenly father is merciful. So um, the band, y'all can come up. We're going to sing this song now. Um, And I would just invite you to really, as I was talking about at the beginning, to think about the lyrics um, and to, yeah, just take this moment to really meditate on who God is and on what that means for your life.